Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Topical with Michael Schaefer. I'm back in Melbourne after a month over in Perth, Western Australia. Thank you to the people who came out to the shows in Perth and Fremantle. It's nice to be back in Melbourne. The jet lag is very real. I feel like people get mocked and ridiculed when they talk about the jet lag between Melbourne and Perth because Australians are so used to having to do a jet lag when they fly to any other country. You fly overseas, it takes a day and a half and you arrive and it's somehow a a different week or you've travelled back in time ludicrously. So, of course, Australians are permitted to complain about jet lag when it comes to international trips, but you should be allowed to complain about jet lag when it comes to Perth and Melbourne because three hours is such an annoying time frame to be jet lagged by. It's just annoying because it's not enough that you get any sympathy from people. No one ever feels sorry for you. You know, you, you come back from London, everyone's like, oh my God, you've come from London. You must be so tired. It must be the middle of the bloody night for you right now. People empathize with a flight from Europe. But you come back from Perth and people are like, jet lag, what do you mean? Get on with your day. Meanwhile, I'm waking, I can't get up before like midday. Like I'm just waking up at mid, like because it's just, and then you try to go to bed and you can't fall asleep till like 3am, 4am because you're on that Perth time zone. It's just, I really think we need to uh, get rid of the time zones in Australia. I think we just have to have one time zone. Now, everyone should just be on East Coast time. I don't see the I don't see why Perth has to be on a different time zone. I know it's ages away, but just make them be on East Coast time. It's just I don't care if they I don't care if the sun rises at three o'clock in the morning for them. Just put them on East Coast time. They need to get on the same page as the rest of the country. Right now we're all dealing with jet lag because the people in Western Australia don't want the sun to rise at 3am. I think it's selfish. I think it's selfish. They should be the ones who come to us rather than us having to deal with this bullshit time difference. It's stupid. It's stupid. Get on the same times. And and while I'm at it, also, I don't want to go controversial here. What's this bullshit half hour difference between Adelaide and Melbourne? What are we doing here? I mean, what a 30 minute difference. Adelaide, get on get on east coast time it's it's ridiculous you can get up 30 minutes later or 30 minutes earlier whatever it turns out to be just just get on everyone needs to get on the same time zone it's just so australia as a country is just so stupid you you know you speak to people from you know who live in europe or whatever and you have to explain to them that oh you can fly 4 hours in a you can fly 4 hours and you're still in the same country you can fly Melbourne to Perth, that's a four-hour flight and you get off the plane and the only difference is is that it's like five degrees hotter. Meanwhile, in Europe, you fly four hours in Europe and you will land in a country that you are in a cold war with. That's that's how different... You fly in Europe for four hours, you will pass 17 countries, you will pass about 35 different languages... And then you will land in a place that is very hostile to your value system. 
And then, I mean, you could make the argument that the same exists when you fly from Melbourne to Perth because you do land in Perth and you feel that hostility towards the the East Coast superiority that they have over in WA. There is a bit of a chip on the shoulder. They know we make fun of them. They know we look down upon them. So there is that hostility beneath the surface. It could also be the fact that it's it's so hot over there. It kind of explains the, the violence. You know, I... I understand why you want to punch an immigrant when it's 43 degrees. I'm not endorsing it. I'm not saying you should punch immigrants. But I am saying that when it's 43 degrees, you're just going to have pent-up frustration. You're going to essentially punch the first non-white thing you see. So, look, I guess my point is, it's nice to be back in Melbourne. And I just hope that, you know, if enough people get behind this podcast, we can finally get all of Australia on the same time zone. I think that would just make things simpler for everyone but it has been nice being back in melbourne in particular right now just because taylor swift is was just in town she did three shows at the melbourne cricket ground i think she must have sold like three hundred thousand tickets which is like a significant proportion of the melbourne was at that concert and a very significant proportion of um, white women in their 30s were at that concert. That is the demographic white millennial women who grew up listening to Tay-Tay. And people make fun of Taylor Swift's fan base. I'm not here to do that. I, I think it's nice that she has such a loyal fan base who identify with her story, who relate with her and what she's been through in her life in all of her 75 breakups and so forth. They, they would... You, they were showing like these like aerial shots of the stadium and it was just, you just see, you know, a hundred thousand Swifties kind of like congregating around Taylor Swift, you know, in the center of the stage. It, it reminded me a lot of the way the Muslims will go to Mecca during Ramadan. I mean, a Taylor Swift concert is Mecca for white women in their thirties. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's a religious experience. You know, they get to be around like-minded people, you know, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand like-minded people. They all flock there. Often they flock from other cities, other countries to be there. And, and there's, yeah, there is also the similarity in that, you know, many of them, you know, haven't eaten either. So, you know, of course, during Ramadan in Mecca, the Muslims won't won't eat during the you know for for a month. They'll only eat at night, and they'll they will skip meals. And for the Swifties, many of them were also uh, quite hungry because they have skipped meals for for months in order to afford the ticket to see Taylor Swift. So a lot of a lot of overlap, I think, between Mecca and uh, and the MCG just in the last in the last few days. A lot of hungry. Uh, devout supporters of Taylor. I mean, she Taylor Swift is is Muhammad for white women. That's what she is. She offers them guidance. She offers them solace. She almost, basically serves as a moral code for them. I mean, she essentially tells them, you know, who to vote for. So she really is the Muhammad of of white women. And I'm not here to make. I mean, the only difference is you can you can draw Taylor Swift without. Uh, being violently murdered. I would say, though, that I, I think it's great that 
I think her impact on the world is is great. I I just I don't understand the hatred towards Taylor Swift. I know that you know a lot of commentators like to be contrarian and they just like to take the opposing view because it's kind of boring to just take the view that Taylor Swift is fantastic. I think she's great. The reason why I like her a lot is because she does just bring a joy and a levity to the lives of white women. And I think they need that. I think there's not there's not many things that white women in their 30s kind of get to experience as a cultural moment. You know, the the kind of the closest they get to a big cultural moment where they all congregate together is, you know, a, a Lululemon sale at DFO. That's kind of, you know, like a, a Mac makeup sale uh, on Boxing Day. I mean, there are just so few kind of opportunities for that demographic to come together and bond and it brings a levity to them and they feel light and joyful after the concert and that often that feeling stays with them sometimes for days weeks you know after you go to a good concert you just you have this lightness in your step i remember seeing Coldplay years ago in melbourne and i was just in a good mood afterwards for for days and I was just listening to their entire discography and just reliving the songs and the performance. They were so good. I really, really enjoyed them. And I think that's what white women are experiencing now. They're just kind of in this like beautiful like honeymoon phase. I've just seen their their leader, their Muhammad, their spiritual guide perform for them in what is very much a religious experience. I would love for people to do some research on on how on how like society changes at least for the few days post Taylor Swift. Like I, I feel like there would be less phone calls to the police complaining about a black kid selling lemonade on the street without a permit. Cause I just feel like that's, you know, when white women are in a bad mood, it tends to, they tend to lash out and it tends to be the poor, you know, black kid who was just trying to make an extra couple of bucks over summer. They tend to bear the brunt of them having a bad day. So I just wonder if Taylor Swift, you know, could be one of the solutions to bigotry. Like you get white women in a good mood and all of a sudden they're no longer going to be, you know, making these vexatious phone calls to the police complaining about seeing a, a man with brown skin walking around their nice neighborhood. I'd love someone to do some to do some study into that because I'm sure it's a factor. I'm sure it's a factor. Someone said to me today that watching the the love and the the popularity of Taylor Swift made him understand what it was like to be an anti-vaxxer during COVID and I that was it for me that was quite an interesting way of perceiving it because look I'm not I'm not like a huge I'm not a Swifty I'm not a huge fan of Taylor Swift I don't I don't hate her I don't like I don't I don't fully get it because it's not for me but I understand it's very popular and there's literally millions and millions and millions of people around the world 
who are like, this is, I need this and I need this in my life. So I guess that's probably how the anti-vaxxers felt because they were in this kind of minority during COVID where they could not understand how the vast majority of people were flocking like sheep to these vaccination centers. And then if you're not a Swifty, it's kind of hard to understand why all these women are, are flocking like sheep to the Melbourne cricket ground to, to listen to what I think is relatively banal run-of-the-mill pop music. And that's not to, again, not to be disparaging or that's just how I perceive it. I know, I know that's not how others perceive it. I'm just saying that I'm basically the anti-vaxxer in this analogy because I don't think that Taylor Swift is real. And I think that she could be a cause of autism. I'm just saying maybe we need to do a bit of... I've done my own research is what I'm trying to say. I've done my own research and I just think we don't know what the long-term effects are of a Taylor Swift concert. There hasn't been enough research done into that and maybe once all that data is out maybe i'll feel comfortable injecting some taylor swift into my life but at the moment you know you hear about you do hear about people attending taylor swift concerts and then they they die from the taylor swift concert there was that there was a woman in brazil who died at a taylor swift concert now all I'm saying is that why would I go to a Taylor Swift concert when not attending a Taylor Swift concert has a 99.99% chance of, of survival? So I guess I can understand the way that the anti-vaxxers felt a little bit during COVID because, yeah, you kind of feel a little bit like you're an outsider. You don't really understand the popularity of this thing that everyone seems to be getting on board with. So I guess, I don't think any anti-vaxxers do listen to this podcast because if you're familiar with my view of you people and you're familiar with my stand-up comedy, I really, really think that um, you're holding society back. But if any of you have survived COVID and you have survived the Darwinian pressure for you to die out and you're listening to this podcast, I just want to say, I see you. I see you and I understand and now I, I get it. I get it. I mean, the Taylor's just, Taylor's just so big that instead of opening this week's episode on the death of Alexei Navalny, the only real opposition uh, to Vladimir Putin in, in Russia, instead of talking about that, I've talked about Taylor Swift and and the ridiculousness of Australia's time zones for the first 15 minutes of the podcast. So some would say that um, I might have buried the lead here, but I, I really do think that the the time zone issue and my thoughts on Taylor Swift are probably more, more relevant to my listeners, many of whom are not Russian dissidents. But if you are a Russian dissident, you're going to love the next segment of the podcast we're going to talk about that i think i mean what i respect you can't say you respect Putin anymore i get that's like a cancelable offense to be like i respect putin but what i respect about putin is he's clearly a man who does not give a fuck 
And I think that whatever side of politics you fall on, whether it's the whether it's a side of democracy or it's a side of fascism, it's nice to see a leader who truly could not give a fuck about what anyone outside of his country thinks. All he cares about is what do the people of Russia think and how do I control those thoughts through a vice-like grip on the media and brutal repression of public demonstrations against me and my policies. You just have to respect a guy who doesn't give a fuck what people outside of Russia think because I think a lot of us in our lives are somewhat, I'm not going to say crippled, I'm not even going to say paralyzed, maybe they're two strong words, but we are somewhat limited by our concern as to how we'll be perceived by others. I can give you an example from my own life is that I, it took me a while to get into stand-up comedy. I had wanted to do it for many years. I got into it when I was 23, which isn't very late, but I think I wanted to do stand-up or at least try it, you know, from an early age, 18, 19, maybe even younger. But I did not want to fail at it. I did not want to try something that was very, very difficult, very, very hard and was and something that I might not succeed at immediately. I didn't I didn't want to fail at something because I thought that I would be you know, I was worried about how other people would see me. I worried I was worried about what people would say about me. Like, oh, you know, Michael he's he's kind of thrown away his uh his academic um achievements and his his legal aspirations to be a lawyer. He's throwing that away to pursue this uh, weird, you know, career that's not really a career and has not many opportunities in a you know industry that is, you know, really kind of designed to let you know one person get through the gate every ten years, and here he is bombing at an open mic to seven people on a Wednesday. That fear of what other people would think of me really, I think, hindered me for many years from like taking the risk in my life and and doing what I want to do. And I guess what I'm getting at here is that I wish I was more like Vladimir Putin. I, I wish that I did not care about what others thought of me and I wish that I just pursued my goals and my dreams and my ambitions uh, fearlessly, which I think is what Vladimir Putin does. Look, a lot of people disagree with with Vladimir Putin's policies and, you know, the uh, annexation of Crimea and the uh, repression of human rights in his own country and the uh, war of aggression and the invasion of Ukraine and the uh, war crimes that his soldiers are committing and the uh, murder of dissidents and the... Uh, jailing of journalists and the fact that he has nuclear weapons and uses them as uh, to kind of hold the world hostage under the threat of a World War Three and a new the nuclear holocaust that would in- 
ensue from that. A lot of people disagree with those things. And I, I look, there are a lot of things you, you can disagree with Vladimir Putin. But what, what we can learn from Vladimir Putin is that this is a man who fiercely pursues his ambitions and goals. And if you are, you know, many of us right now, you know, we're wondering, what should we do next with our career? Should I, should I take that big risk? Should I, should I quit my job and, you know, invest in myself and go traveling or, or just do a new job or, or, you know, should I leave this relationship that is I'm comfortable in, but doesn't really fulfill me and, and, and be single for a while and, and learn more about myself. And, and that's scary and that's risky. Should I travel? Should I, should I change careers? We all have these fears and many of which stem from, you know, being concerned about how other people perceive us and what other people say about us. And I think if we could all be a little bit more like Vladimir Putin, I think that we could all find a bit more joy and fulfillment and contentment in our lives. And we could all be more connected to our inner selves. Because say what you will about Vladimir Putin, the man is really in touch with his with his inner self. You know, he he is who he is. He and he he will kill people willy-nilly who threaten any of his actions and i'm not saying you should kill the people who oppose you i'm not saying that you should invade a neighboring country i'm just saying you it's not you should have that uh confidence in yourself and you should have that healthy disdain of what other people think of you and that's that is something that we can learn from the brutal dictatorship of of Vladimir Putin. I should also remind any new listeners to this podcast at this point that this is a comedy podcast and all of these statements should be taken uh, as jokes rather than as literal statements, which is how a lot of people like to interpret my comedy. Back to the show. What I respect about Vladimir Putin is that he doesn't give a fuck about what other people think of him. And you know, this ain't how much you know that. they. So he, you know, he kills... Alexei Navalny, who has been his main political rival for over a decade, you know, Navalny's been in and out of jail protesting Putin and, um, I guess, gathering supporters behind him as the only real uh, political opposition to Vladimir Putin. He's been doing this for years and, you know, Putin kind of kept him alive, you know, for a number of years because he realized, oh, if I... If I were to kill him, it would turn him into a martyr and then that could kind of galvanize his base and lead to, you know, protests on the street and demonstrations. It just could be a bad look if I were to turn him into a hero by killing him. He'd basically become like their Jesus, you know. So he kind of kept him alive for a while and then decided, okay, now's the time to kill him just a couple of weeks out from the Russian election. Now, the reason why I killed him now, it seems it's because he's got this... He's been repressing protests for so many years, and people are too scared to go out and protest now. So he kind of killed him at a time where he decided you can kill him without kind of seeing mass protests on the street. It seems like it was calculated and it was all planned out. And what I love about the Kremlin is how they came out and said the cause of death of Alexei Navalny was sudden death syndrome which is a very, very funny way to characterize the uh, decades-long persecution and subsequent 
murder of your only political rival. I like, and he, and that's that's my point. Like, if Putin gave a shit what anyone thought, they would make something up that sounded real. They'd be like, "Oh, he got COVID." I mean, what an easy ex- he got COVID. What an easy excuse. You could just be like, "He got COVID," or "He got pneumonia," or I mean, there's you could just it's he got cancer. Just you could so easy he had a stroke. You could make there's so many easy ways to just he got he he killed himself. Just make up the Epstein lie. The guy just say he killed himself. Like you could lie so easily, you know. And and but of course to do that would to would to would to admit that he does care what the Western media thinks of him. You know, to put out that lie would be to admit that he does care how others perceive him. So to just come out and just make up some some obvious vague term like sudden death syndrome, like he like that he says that with a bit of a wink and a nod to the camera, like, hey, sudden death syndrome. Am I right? You know, it's it's like a joke. It's 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 him saying to the West, have fun with this. Have fun with this. I don't give a fuck what you say about it. I know it's funny. I know it's funny to call this sudden death syndrome because you look at a lot of the opponents to Vladimir Putin over the past decades, many of them seem to be dying from sudden death syndrome. Uh, either the sudden death uh, that occurs from falling out of a 15-story building, a 15-story building, uh, when you're a Russian, when you're a Russian oligarch who uh, hasn't paid his bribes to the Russian government, or perhaps you uh, were poisoned with plutonium. That can often cause sudden death. Uh, maybe you were shot 12 times in the back and fell off a bridge into a river. These are all examples of sudden death syndrome that have taken place in Russia over the past, you know, couple of decades since Putin has been in power. And I just love how, you know, normally he would just like blame, you could blame it on like Chechnyan terrorists. You could blame it on the CIA. You could blame it on Ukraine. You could... You could make up a disease that he contracted in prison. But to just come out and say, hey, how funny is this? We're going to go with sudden death syndrome. Fuck, that's so funny. I really think you got to give it up for a man who does not give a shit. Because I think if we, if we all had that confidence in our lives, we'd all, be, we'd all be happier. We'd all be happier. Something I didn't speak about in the podcast last week. I just didn't have really time for it. But I'll, I'll talk about it t- today. It's the Tucker Carlson interview with with Vladimir Putin. So last week, Tucker Carlson, he's the former, uh, you know, host of the Fox News show Tucker Carlson Tonight. He lost his job a bit over a year ago. He claimed it was because of his views on the war in Ukraine, but most likely it was due to like allegations of bullying, harassment, and sexual misconduct in the workplace because that's probably the only reason you'd lose your job at Fox just because that's the only reason you like you'd that's the only way that Fox would lose money really they're not gonna they're not gonna lose money by you you know taking the view that Russia should should annex all of Ukraine because that is something that a lot of their base actually support and they don't support the funding of the Ukrainian war effort by the American government. So 
Takahashi basically, look, he lost his job and now he's just almost like this freelance journalist and he, he just goes around interviewing people and he has his show on X. And he interviewed, he interviewed Vladimir Putin last week in about a two-hour-long interview. And look, I'm not here to defend Tucker Carlson. That's not what I want to do. I, I have mocked him relentlessly for a long time. But what I will say about Tucker Carlson is that, A, very brave. I mean, very brave to go to Moscow and interview Vladimir Putin because you know this is a guy who just he kind of just see when he when Vladimir Putin sees a journalist he has like a knee-jerk reaction to murder them like it's almost like a it's like this Pavlovian response like oh journalist dead bang shoot them between the eyes particularly a foreign journalist like that's he has this kind of like almost like PTSD knee-jerk reaction to seeing a foreign journalist he's like they must die immediately so I guess credit to Tucker Carlson for just turning up as a foreign journalist uh, in in Russia and and meeting with Putin. Look, perhaps the reason why Putin didn't kill him on sight is because Putin doesn't actually see him as as a journalist. He he sees him as just some sort of like you know useful idiot that he can exploit and use to get his Russian propaganda out into the Western world. So that kind of is. It's actually kind of insulting to Tucker Carlson that Vladimir Putin had no interest in murdering him because that proves how little of a threat Tucker Carlson is to Vladimir Putin and, and the Russian regime. Like the, f- the fact that Vladimir Putin let Tucker live just shows how, I guess, you know, pointless and irrelevant Tucker Carlson is to journalism in the Western world. But of course, he's very, very important, very relevant to perpetuating the Russian propaganda machine that Ukraine is historically part of Russia and that Zelensky is a Nazi and all Ukraine is full of Nazis. And just just before I continue, the whole Ukraine is full of Nazis thing, not completely untrue. Not completely untrue. I'm not saying they're all Nazis, but like, if you have any understanding of uh, World War II history... Um, when the Germans rolled through Eastern Europe and they encountered all these, you know, Soviet bloc countries, I'm talking like Romania, Hungary, Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, you know, they turned up and tell you what, a lot of collaboration, a lot of collaboration between many of those citizens and the Nazi forces. In fact, if you watch some documentaries, um, about the Einsatzgruppen, who were the German uh, uh, officers in task with basically rounding up and all the Jews into pits and shooting them in the head. Um, if you watch those documentaries, many of the Einsatzgruppen were like, like shocked and sometimes impressed and appalled by the enthusiasm of the local Ukrainians who were so thrilled to have the Nazis turn up and be like, oh my God, we've been ages for you guys. We've been trying to kill these Jews for years. Thank you so much for turning up. So, And that is, a, that is also a part of their history in many of these Eastern European nations that they do not want to talk about. They do not want to talk about how so many of their grandparents and great-grandparents 
collaborated with the Nazis and were thrilled to get rid of the Jews. They are they do not want to talk about that. Like they only want to talk about how it was no, it was the Nazis. We tried our best to hide the Jews and we certainly did not point out anyone with a big nose to the Nazis. Like they just they don't want to acknowledge that aspect of their history. And as a result of that, the I Nazism and neo Nazism and fascism that um, really kind of ugly subculture uh, still exists in a lot of parts of these countries because they never acknowledged what they did and what they participated in. We know the Germans did that. The Germans were like, yeah, we sorry. Like the Germans are just so constantly apologetic about the Holocaust. They're so apologetic about the Holocaust. They have to support Israel's in its war against Hamas irrespective of what Israel does. Like, that's how fucking, like... Like, Germany is now Israel's bitch, basically. Germany just has to be like, you, yeah, Jews, you got this. You go get them. You uh, do it. You, you slay Jews, yes, queen. Like, that's what Germany has to be because they have acknowledged and they have dealt with their Nazism and they are trying to stamp out Nazism in their country. And now it's illegal to be a Nazi. It's a little bit to have a swastika, etc., etc. But in these other Eastern European countries, they don't acknowledge it. They do not acknowledge their history. They don't, they don't want to deal with the fact that the collaboration that they committed with the Nazis was real. And, they, and as a result of that, the, this whole, you know, that ideology does pass down from generation to generation. So there are some Nazis in Ukraine. I'm not saying the whole place is full of Nazis. I'm not, sure that ju- I'm not, I'm not saying that justifies the war in Ukraine, just because, you know, there's kind of Nazis everywhere. If, that, if your justification for, any, for invading a place was, oh, there's Nazis there, I mean, you'd fucking have to invade, uh, I, I would say, every country in the world, except for maybe, maybe Vanuatu. Maybe Vanuatu. I don't think Nazism has reached the Pacific Islands. Look, my point is, Tucker Carlson interviews Russia, interviews Russian President Vladimir Putin. And a lot of people were criticizing Tucker and being like, oh, what a softball interview, you know. And of course, it was, it was a softball interview. Like, he turns up and says, hey, thanks for chatting. And what, why, did you invade, why did you invade Ukraine? And then Putin spends 30 minutes talking pretty much uninterrupted going about the history of Europe and going back 1,500 years to medieval times and... And Tucker's just staring there with mouth slightly agape, being like, huh, what? And and people are criticizing Tucker Carlson for not pushing back against Vladimir Putin. Well, look, in his defense, in defense of Tucker Carlson, it's kind of risky to push back against Vladimir Putin uh, when he's sitting right in front of you and you're in Moscow and there is a... There is a... a a, a, K, a former KGB officer ready to put some Soviet-era nerve agent in your coffee. Like, you can't expect Tucker Carlson... The man, first of all, has never done, like, hard journalism ever. He's never actually sat down and just, like, grilled someone on their beliefs. He just sits down and talks to people that... He agrees with. He's been doing that for decades and it's, it's served him very well. He's made a lot of money out of doing that. Good for him. He's not going to change tact. He's not going to do his, he's not going to ask his first hard question of the 
tyrannical authoritarian murdering dictator Vladimir Putin. It's crazy to expect him to do that. I think it's if I were interviewing Vladimir Putin, and and I, I would just be like, mate, you're the goat. Thank you for teaching me that I too should take risks in my life because without you, I never would have tried stand-up comedy. You told me that you had to not give a fuck about what other people think of you. That's what I learned from you. And I want to thank you for giving me the courage to put more content out there and really put myself out there in the world to be judged and and to ignore the haters. You know, people say you got to ignore the haters and fuck Putin. Putin is is the goat of ignoring the haters. He really, really is. So I don't I don't judge Tucker Carlson for for not asking Putin the hard questions. I do judge him for for glorifying life in Russia. Um, because if in addition to that interview, he also filmed himself um, walking through like this the subway in uh, Moscow and how and he was talking about how beautiful the subway is very clean. It's very safe. It's like beautifully decorated. There's all these beautiful mosaics in the Moscow uh, subway system. And what I find so incredibly funny and stupid by that is that he's literally just doing PR for Russia at this point. And I wonder if maybe that was a precondition of the interview with with Vladimir Putin that in addition, if you want the interview with Putin, you're going to have to do some PR for the Russian Federation, you're going to have to show the world how nice our metro, how nice and safe our metro system is. You know, you. And by the way, the reason why the subway system is nice in Russia is because it was built in like the 50s by Stalin, and he built it literally as a propaganda tool. He literally built it in order to show off the wealth that comes from a communist regime, because of course at the time there was a big battle between communism and capitalism and Stalin was trying to prove that communism was, you know, that step toward, that was a great leap forward for humanity. And so a lot of the public spaces in Russia are beautiful. They're grand, they're stunning, and they're designed literally to impress foreigners. And so many of the main subway systems in Russia, in Moscow, and I went to St. Petersburg and did a tour of Saint, of the St. Petersburg uh, subway um, system, there is a great tool you can do of that. The ve- the first thing they explain to you is like, oh yeah, this is like all propaganda from Stalin. Like he built all these things because he wanted to prove to his own people that communism was the way forward. And of course he wanted to prove it to the West that communism was the way forward. So it's so funny that Tucker Carlson, a man who has spent his, in- like, his entire life just railing against communism and talking about the evils of communism and and socialism and Marxism to then go to Russia and literally engage in the exact type of Russian propaganda that the Stalin regime had itself concocted back in the 50s in order to try to win the hearts and minds of people during the Cold War. So this, and I can only assume he did that because it was part of his deal with, uh, with Russia, that he had to do PR for them and, and show people how wonderful the metro system was. I mean, it's like, 
It's like going to do a, an interview with Kim Jong-un in North Korea and then on the way out filming the only buffet in the whole country and being like, look how much food they have in North Korea. Things are going great here. I mean, it's so blatantly stupid and shallow and superficial. Perfect, perfect content for his audience on Twitter. He also, in that, in that video, he also filmed himself going to uh, a supermarket in Russia and doing a shop there. And the whole point of doing the supermarket shop and filming it was to basically show how much cheaper things were in Russia and how if only America, you know, prioritized its own citizens uh, the way that Russia prioritizes its own citizens, if only America did the same thing and stopped, you know, sending money to Israel and to Ukraine, then perhaps the cost of living would be uh, lessened in America and perhaps their groceries would be as cheap as they are in Russia. And yes, groceries are cheaper in Russia, but first of all, that's because they have less money in Russia. Like he was like, oh my God, this week's shop only cost a hundred US dollars. And that's, yeah, that's cheap if you're earning if you're in US dollars, but they're earning in fucking, you know, ruples or whatever the fuck it is that they've got over there. And so, you know, then it's not the same, Tucker. It's not, it's, you have to account for currency exchange. You know this, that's, that's not how, that's not how things work. And it's, it was just it's so incredibly dishonest and so patently, you know, par, it, it, you know that there was like an FSB agent just off camera, just holding a gun with a silencer, just aimed at Tucker Carlson and just being like, motherfucker, if you don't tell your audience how cheap bread is in this country, you're not fucking leaving ever. So it just felt, it, it, the whole thing just looked, felt and looked like a hostage video. And, you know, look, if that's all you have to do to get a one-on-one sit down with Vladimir Putin, go for it. If that's what you have to do to get the views on X, go for it. If you have to be a puppet of the Russian regime, go for it. I, I'll be honest, if Putin said to me, I'll have a one-on-one chat with you, but all you have to do is tell people to, you know, tell people that Russia is great. Look, I'd probably do it just because, you know, not because I think Russia is great, but because I, I would want to meet my my hero and spiritual guide, Vladimir Putin. You know, as I've discussed already in this podcast, he is, for me, the reason why, you know, why I got into comedy and why I continue to pursue comedy. Guys, we're up to this week's Weekly Hero. And it sounds like the Weekly Hero this week is going to be Vladimir Putin. But I want to show a little love to, to someone else who I think deserves some love. He's going through a tough time at the moment. And that man is the CEO of Woolworths, Brad Banducci. So... This guy, this is breaking news. He just resigned. He just stepped down. Now, look, he stepped down amidst a bit of, there's been a bit of controversy, you know, following Woolworths around the last couple of months. Because, you know, first of all, they, you know, there was that big uh, fuss about how they weren't selling Australia Day merchandise. People were upset that Woolworths had gone woke. They were calling it Wokeworths because they weren't selling t-shirts made in china to commemorate british colonialism which is of course the most australian thing you can do 
So firstly, there was that. But that kind of blew over. So that wasn't really the reason why he had to resign. The cost of living and the rising price of Woolworths has really pissed off customers. And it kind of erupted uh, last night or two days ago when he did an interview with the Four Corners. And he was basically being grilled in what we would call uh, legitimate proper journalism, something that Tucker Carlson is, has not done ever. He was being grilled by the journalists for Four Corners on the ABC, basically saying like, hey, do you guys price gouge? It seems like you're price gouging. It seems like you are like putting up the costs of your products and it's not really in line with inflation. You're just trying to make more money. You're, you're recording record profits. Your staff are being replaced with self-serve checkout machines. They're also being treated like shit. They're being underpaid. Uh, you're fucking over the farmers because you basically hold them to ransom and set the price for their goods and don't give them any negotiation or wiggle room. You know, just being absolutely grilled on their quite uh, on on the duopoly they have with with Coles and the way in which they have a tremendous amount of power over their suppliers and also over their consumers in how they set prices. He's been grilled by that. And he was trying to like maintain this unflappable, this unflappable facade. And he was trying to like speak in media terms and being like, no, of course, the culture and the synergy of the Woolworths, you know, you know, family is that we don't ever exploit our suppliers who we see as ex-members of our own family. And I would never you know, you know, exploit my mother for a dollar. I would, you know, it's, he's just doing all this like, you know, media speak and he's clearly media trained. But then the facade slips and I saw the humanity in him and, and I, and, and that's why I really liked him for a brief moment because the ABC journalist said to him, okay, according to the uh, recently retired chairman of the ACCC, you are price gouging. And then this guy, the facade just dropped for a second and you saw the anger and the frustration just, and the vitriol and the disdain that he feels for critics just kind of come out of him in a, in a very brief moment. He just said, oh, well, he's, but that man's retired. What would he know? And you just realized, oh, this guy is... The, the the facade drops for a second. This guy fucking hates it when you criticize. And this guy fucking can't deal with people telling him that he's that he's doing the wrong thing. And he said that and then he immediately caught himself and went, oh shit, I fucked that up. And he immediately said, oh, we, let's cut that out. Take that out. Let's not do that. And the Four Corners was like, uh, well, we're on the record. So, I mean, that's... We're definitely keeping that in. You know, that's going to be in the interview. And then we saw the Woolworths like PR team kind of step in, pull him aside and be like, dude, don't fucking let the facade fall again for fuck's sake. And then he went back and did the remainder of the interview and and he kind of somehow maintained his composure for the remainder of the interview. But the, the damage had been done. The damage had been done. And as a result, he lost his job today. He announced that he was resigning after eight years or so in the job. And, you know, it's, it seems like it was off the back of that train wreck of an interview. Now, look, you're probably wondering, why is he your weekly hero? Why is he, why is he the person you're celebrating this week? When, of course, you could be celebrating Vladimir Putin or perhaps even Alexei Navalny, who died for uh, the sake of democracy. 
Now, sure, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure, you could make Navalny the weekly hero, but where's the fun in that? You know, let's. I, I think the outgoing multi millionaire CEO of Woolworths deserves a bit of love. Be, and the reason why I want him to be our weekly hero this week is because he did something that, you know, you rarely see people in, you know, corporate executive jobs do, which is he showed who he was. He was honest for a brief flickering moment. We saw his true self. We saw his selfishness. We saw his greediness. We saw his anger, his, his anger, his disdain, his arrogance, his dismissiveness. We saw that. And why that makes him my hero this week because most of them don't ever show you that side of them. Most of these motherfuckers will pretend they're human. Most of these motherfuckers will be like, of course, we love our customers. And of course, it upsets us when we have to charge $17 for an apple because we know how much Australian families love to give apples to their kids. You know, and it's, it pains us, but we have to do it because our suppliers are telling us that the apples are too expensive and, and you know, the price of fuel went up and, and you know, there's the war in Ukraine and, and now everything's really expensive and it's really hard for us too and we're only making a billion dollars a year and it's not enough for me to buy my fourth yacht. You know, they they speak in this really corporatized and mechanical, real media-trained way and it just upsets me so much to watch and I just like how Brad Banducci, just for a brief moment, maybe he didn't mean it, it just for a brief moment was honest and truthful and you saw his soul and I liked that. I really liked that and he paid the ultimate price. Well, the ultimate price would be being murdered. He paid a price, which was he lost his job. And that's why Brad Banducci is my my hero this week because I, I hope that... I hope that... I'm upset that he was fired because... If he weren't fired and he faced no consequences for showing us who he truly was, maybe that would encourage other corrupt, nefarious, greedy CEOs and executives to also come out and just be honest and be like, hey, yeah, I'm a cunt as well and I don't give a fuck what anyone else thinks of me. You know, and and as I've said today, I think that is a respectable and... uh, inspiring attitude to have you know we see it in vladimir putin you know it's we see it in the ceos of these major corporations and it's the reason why they are the psychopaths that they are and it's the reason why they achieve they achieve their dreams so dear listener if you take nothing from today's episode it's stop caring what other people think and if you want to you know if you want to price gouge and you want to exploit hardworking Aussie farmers, you do it. Don't, don't worry about what other people think. If, if you want to um, violate the Geneva Convention and invade uh, another sovereign country, you do it. You, you do it. You do it. Thank you for listening to this week. Less of a podcast, more of just like a, a motivational, I should maybe call it the, uh, Michael Shaver's Motivational Hour. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Melbourne Comedy International, Melbourne Comedy, Melbourne International Comedy Festival shows are kicking off next month, 20th of March through the 21st of April. 
The show is good. It's funny. It's brutal. It's savage. Um, if you're into that kind of thing, come along and bring your mates. Website is michaelshaver.com for the tickets. Have a good week. I'll see you soon. Good night.